You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Hi, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Very excited and honored to interview for the resurgence, Dr. R.C. Sproul. Good to have you, buddy. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Good to be Wonderful. with you. I got I've got questions, mainly from Facebook friends. Um, I've got to ask this one, though. Technologically, I notice you're running top 10 on iTunes for religion and spirituality. You're very popular online. But to set this up, we had to do faxes. So have you ever actually received or sent an email? Not to this moment. <laughs> That's awesome. And you said we were in the top 10 of what? Uh, <laughs> it's a podcast for iTunes under the category of religion and spirituality. I hope you're not going to ask me what a podcast is. Because <laughs> I don't know. You don't know? How about uh, the Internet? It's on the Internet. How many times I've have heard you... of the Internet. Have you ever been on the Internet? I have not. You have never logged on to the Internet? No, I have not. And you just recently got an iPhone? Just got an iPhone two weeks ago. Two weeks ago? And how's that going for you? Well, so far, so good. I've, the good news is I have uh, two grandsons that live at home. Yeah. And they're real savvy with this high-tech stuff. Yeah. And so they set up my iPhone for me so I could get the Pittsburgh Steelers information. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I use it for. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, email, email and that sort of thing, that's... Another, Not interesting. I think it's wonderful, though, that you allow all your content to be given away. You don't need to be the one that understands all the technology, but if you're teaching the Bible about Jesus and bringing sound reform doctrine, the fact that you allow it to be given away, I think, is wonderful. And for a lot of us who enjoy it, I just want to say thank you. Well, you're more than welcome. You know, the one thing that, that I wish that I had in common with the Apostle Paul, besides our theology... Hmm is that, that I could speak and teach and preach without microphones and yeah. TV cameras and all that stuff in a way. Can you imagine what it had been like, how wonderful it was in his day? That Do you think it changes things once you bring the cameras in and the microphones in? Uh, it, it changes comfort level, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I've been so used to it now for so many years, Mark, it doesn't really bother me anymore. Yeah. But there was a day when it did. There was a day when I felt uh, constrained because mm. of, of those things. But really, the upside of it, of ex- expanding your ministry and extending it to places you'll never visit personally, that's yeah. amazing. Well, I think what's amazing is you probably then don't have a full accounting or understanding of your impact. No. I, I, uh, when I come to a city like Seattle and we put on a conference and people come up and they say they listen to the radio program and they read the books or whatever, and thank me. I mean, I haven't got past that yet. I mean, that just overwhelms me. It just yeah. amazes me that uh, that the impact can go to people that you never meet or never see. And it's uh, yeah. Well, there are millions of young people who love you, who listen to you on their phone, who listen to you on their iPod. Now, how could they listen to me on the phone when I've never called? <laughs> <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
I just can't, uh, can't really relate to that. I well, I think there's a lot of people like me. Uh, God saved me. There's the Calvinists. You notice I didn't say I gave my life to the Lord. That's right. So God saved me when I was uh, 19 in college. And I think one of the first books that someone handed me uh, was The Holiness of God. You were still in college when that book was out? I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, and I started reading your books. And for me, they were a good introduction to the Reformed faith at a level that I had accessibility. Uh, as a new Christian, still trying theologically to figure out a lot of deep, complicated issues. Um, and so there's a generation, I think, of young leaders that have basically grown up with you, and you didn't know us. But we look to you kind of mm-hmm. as a, a father figure and an instructor and a help. How does yeah. that feel? Well, you know, a few years before Jim Boyce died, we were so close, and uh, he looked at me one day and he said, you know, R.C., we're not the Young Turks anymore. <laughs> I, said, I still haven't come to that realization yet. I still think uh, that I'm one of the younger boys on the street, but I guess I'm not anymore. And when you talk about father figure, that's, that's a little bit scary to me. But mm-hmm. when I was in college, I was converted in college too. And I remember at, at the very time of my conversion, I said I was raised in a particular church. And, and I said, I don't want to be in that church just because that's my background. I want to think through what the Bible teaches. Yeah. And I want to be, if I am going to be reformed, I have to be first generation because I can't just inherit this stuff. Sure. Everything was new to me. And so I studied different uh, creeds and confessions as long as I was studying the Bible. Ended up back where I'd started, but the, uh, I was glad that I had that starting point. Absolutely. Would you mind if I asked you a few questions? There's this thing called Facebook. I don't know if you've even probably never visited it. Maybe never have. Have you heard of it? I've heard people use that phrase. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have millions of young people on Facebook who love you. It's a social networking site. Think uh, people getting together to chat digitally and post photos and dialogue. Um, and so they gave me some questions they'd love to ask you. And if you're okay, some of them are theological, some of them are pastoral, some of them are personal. Absolutely. Listen, I'll answer any question you want to ask me. Okay. Just as long as you know the answer, maybe I don't know. Yeah. It's either going to be I don't know or the Pittsburgh Steelers. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or if you ask me where evil came from, Oakland. I'm not going to say <laughs> Okay. Here's the first one. It's from uh, Matt Oskverick, uh, Facebook guy. Uh, He says, okay, here is my shot. This is the theological question. Does God desire all people to be saved? The question is not about anything but desire concerning all humans. He says, I'm not asking about being predestined, election. Uh, I understand John Owen's teaching and the smart seminary types. I'm wondering, though, about all people. Does God really want all people to be saved? Not God's sovereign decree and determination, but does he really want everyone to be saved? And his question is out of 1 Timothy 2, 3. And four, uh, this is good, pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. A classic Calvinistic question, God sovereignly decrees salvation, does he really want everyone to be saved? What would you say? Well, when we talk about God's want to, excuse me for being a theologian here for a second, but you said it was a theological question, is that we're looking at the, the biblical concept of the will of God. And if you look at it, there are two different Greek words that are translated by the English word will, thelo, thelo, my, for example. Mm-hmm. And, 
And yet, if you examine those words etymologically, you'll see that they're very nuanced. There may be seven or eight distinct ways in which the Bible speaks of the will of God. One of which is his sovereign will that you've mentioned. Another will is preceptive will, his law that he gives us. But there's also what we would call his his, uh, will of disposition. That is what pleases him. And when the Bible says that God is not willing, for example, uh, or it takes no delight in the death of the wicked, it tells us something, I think, about the, the character of God. That even though he's committed to justice, even though he's committed to judgment, he doesn't get his jollies by subjecting people to punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, uh, a sadistic tyrant would. And I think that's the vein in which the Bible says he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God doesn't, doesn't enjoy, in a certain sense, sending people to hell. But he does it. But there's grief. There's, but yeah, but if we're going to attribute human emotions to God, yeah. that would be a, a one. I think about a judge who's sitting on the bench and up be, before him comes his son. And his son is guilty, and the law requires that he be sent to prison. And the judge is supposed to do what is right, and he does what is right. He sends, a, sends that boy to prison, but he does it in tears. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what it's t- telling us about the, the character of God, you know, that his, that his disposition is one of loving kindness. Mm-hmm. But that loving kindness does not annul his concern for righteousness or for justice. It's a great answer. I hope it helps. It's good. Let me find another one. All right, find another one now. <laughs> there, it shouldn't be hard to find, Mark. You got them right there I in your paper. I got a whole list. Right? I, I got it from this thing called the Internet, and then <laughs> yeah. I printed it. It was amazing. Uh, Jonathan Paul Poland, uh, he asks a more current question. He says, uh, Dr. Sproul, in your opinion... Has the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America now committed apostasy since it has recently sanctioned the ordaining of gay clergy in the church? <clears throat> That's a difficult one because uh, uh, when you talk about apostasy, mm-hmm. you can talk about it in, in different levels of intensity. And we talk about apostasy de facto, apostasy, de jure. That is, if, if a church would reject an essential doctrine of the Christian faith, if the ELCA rejected the deity of Christ, for example, then I would say it would be clearly apostate. But you get within, the, within Protestant Christianity, historically, after the Reformation, and you have all these different churches starting up, the Lutherans and the Episcopalians and the Scottish Reformed and so on. With this proliferation of churches, the question that came to the fore was, well, what makes up a valid church? What are the marks, marks. of a true church? Because obviously these people didn't have a homogeneous theology they were not monolithic in all of their concerns and everything, but they said there were certain basic essentials to a true church. One, that there would be the preaching of the gospel. Two, that they would administer the sacraments. And the three, that they would have some kind of government by which church discipline yeah. were maintained. Mm-hmm. And that's where the question of apostasy <laughs> comes up with respect not to theology, but to behavior. Right. 
if a church sanctions uh, sin and will not discipline sin, then the question arises whether that church is really being the church. And again, that's part of what the Reformation was about. When we talk about the Reformation of the 16th century, we think in terms of the doctrinal disputes, particularly justification and scripture, but also even by those who stayed in Rome, people like Erasmus who wrote The Praise of Folly, he wrote a satire exposing the egregious immorality of the clergy of the day. Just like we've witnessed recently with the uh, this uh, proliferation of cases with child molestation and yeah. stuff in the church. Now, if the church knowingly puts up with that and endorses it, that's apostasy. Now, one of the good things about the Reformation in the 16th century from the Roman Catholic perspective is a lot of that behavioral problem was uh, addressed and cleaned up. The church did a, did a lot to clean up its own immorality. Yeah. Now, that's a, sort of going around the barn to get to the question. of If you knowingly uh, endorse behavior that the Bible prohibits, that's serious business. Now, that can happen for a season. And a church could be involved in error and weakness for a season. But if they persist in it impenitently, then I, I think they're, they're staring at the problem of apostasy. Yeah, relatedly, I was talking to G.I. Packer about, I think it's about a year ago, regarding the same issue in Anglicanism globally, uh, the Episcopal Church in America. And uh, one of the things that he said was, if you don't call people to repent, you've abandoned the gospel. And so his point was that that kind of tolerance and diversity is what is undergirding heresy, kind of this question of apostasy as well. How would you respond to that? Well, you know, you look at the Bible, and the Bible is uh, very clear that we are called to be long-suffering, patient, kind, forgiving, tolerant people. And yet at the same time, a line is drawn that we are not to tolerate the intolerable. You saw what happened in the Corinthian community where out of this spirit of tolerance, the incestuous man was uh, maintained within the body of Christ. And Paul had to write to the Corinthians and say, hey, this is scandal. This is very egregious sin. You've got to discipline this fellow. And so they did end up, they excommunicated. And then what happened? The man repents and they won't let him back. Paul has to write them again and say, you've fallen off the other side of the horse now. He (laughs) says, you've got to be ready to forgive these people when they repent. But we've come to a place now in so many circumstances. And I think it's it's, it's not fair to just point out the ELCA. I mean, there are other denominations denominations. doing the same thing. And they're saying, in this day and age, uh, we we don't want to... uh, be judgmental about this is a natural, normal, behavioral lifestyle. And there the crisis is how the New Testament speaks about uh, same-sex relationships, sexual relationships, which is very strong, as you know, and how our culture has taken a very different position. And there now the real question is authority. Yeah. Do you submit to the, the apostolic teaching or to what's acceptable in your contemporary culture? Um, I think you know the answer. To, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that <laughs> answer. 
One last theological question. I do think you're right, too. I think it is an issue of authority. Is there any authority beyond me? Parents, teachers, pastors, governments, scripture, does anyone have authority? And that really is the root of kind of the postmodern question, is there any authority? Um, and those who answer no, I think it's impossible to be a faithful Christian. I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, fourth theological question. Um, make this the last theological question. What do you think is the biggest theological battle that the next generation of pastors and teachers will have to fight? Young, let's say there's, let me set it up a little differently. Let's say there's young pastors, church planners, seminary students, Bible college students. What would you tell them for your life's work ahead of you? Really study, focus hard, you know, guard this flank. This is somewhere to put a lot of attention because theologically, this is going to be a big battle coming up. I think the biggest theological issue of our day uh, and of what's coming that I can see as a theologian that may surprise you, but I think it's Christology, hmm. our understanding of the person and work of Christ. Now, I could have come at it a different way and say what's really at stake is the gospel. But at the heart of the gospel is the person and the work of Jesus. Who is he? What has he done? In four centuries in church history, the chief theological debate was on the person of Christ. The fourth century with Nicaea, the fifth century at Chalcedon, the 19th century with the advent of uh, European uh, liberalism, and the 20th century with uh, neoliberalism uh, attacking the atonement of Christ, the deity of Christ, the miracles of Christ. But even within the evangelical world today, you see the assault on the work of Christ against his uh, perfect act of obedience, his role as the new Adam, his role as supplying the necessary grounds for our justification through his own, through the imputation of his perfect righteousness. Right now, I see within evangelicalism that issue of the imputation of Christ's righteousness yeah, to the right, believer. The new yeah, the new Paul. perspective. I think that is uh, that could be absolutely fatal. I don't think it will be because I have a higher view of uh, providence than that, but we're playing with uh, real dangerous stuff there. And for those who, you know, consider it more of an academic debate, if we miss the double imputation of Adam's guilt and Christ's righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21 kind of scenario, practically, what do we lose if we lose the imputation of the righteousness? I think you lose Christianity. I think it's that important. You know, so, I mean, it's all part of the article upon which the church stands or falls. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, if I can step out of the shoes of academia here for a minute and just talk about me personally. You go to the Heidelberg Catechism, what's your only hope in life and death? Yeah. Well, what else do I have, Mark, yeah. except Jesus yeah. and what he has done for me? Yeah. Without him and his righteousness, I'm cooked. If I have to stand before a holy God based on my own performance, I have yeah, two chances, slim and none. We're going slim out the window right yeah, now. Right. We're going right out the window. Absolutely, without a net. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. To me, for I mean, we deal a lot with rape victims, abuse victims, thousands of new converts in their 20s, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, and expiation. That Christ takes away our filth and shame and disgrace, and he gives us his righteousness. It's absolutely life-changing. It's life-giving. Eternally, Yeah, it just transforms people. Yeah. Really appreciate all of your time. We'll transition now, Dr. Sproul, into uh, pastoral 
questions, and uh, these are mainly from Facebook. Some good questions. We got many. I'll pick this one. What does RC think of his golf buddy and student Alice Cooper's uh, onstage performance? Are they helpful or harmful? I know he loves Christ, but how is it for RC to be friends with Alice Cooper? That, by the way, is the most interesting friendship. I know. Do you watch much TV? No. You I guys watch the Steeler games. You watch the Steeler games. <laughs> I see a theme. Uh, you guys would be an amazing reality television show. RC Sproul and Alice Cooper. I know he came to faith. He's been discipled by you. He's still a rock star. How does that work? You and Alice Cooper being buddies. Well, let me just speak to this. This is one of these cases where something small explodes into a, a myth, you know, an epic that, story. That's my life story, yeah. by the way. Yeah. I'm glad you've never been on the Internet. I happened to be doing a conference in uh, San Diego, I think it was, and uh, Vince, is his real name, Vince Cooper, was one of the attendees. And when the conference was over, a buddy of mine and I snuck out to put in a round of golf. Sure. And we walk into the pro shop, and there's... Vince, and he was just ready to tee off, and so it was through a providential meeting there. It's not like he called me up and said, hey, R.C., let's go out and play golf. It wasn't like that at all. We just happened to meet up at the golf course, and we played one round of golf while we were there in San Diego, and from that, it's come to the place that we're golf buddies, you know, and that we're golf partners. It's like we go play together every week or something, play golf once with them. Of course, in the first hole, he left his putt short, and, and I used the standard language, nice putt, Alice, you know. <laughs> I'm sure he gets at it all the time. He was an absolute delight to mm. play with. Uh, was very much committed to his Christian faith. Mm. Also very much committed to golf. I uh, was a good golfer. And uh, as far as his public persona, I have seen... Pictures here and there with his macabre uh, yeah. dress and Alan snakes and all this stuff. I've never watched a performance of his. You, ever you, in my life. you don't have like a concert T-shirt. You're not. I didn't part I, of the bands. I, I, didn't, know, groupie, I, I didn't buy the T-shirt. You know. <laughs> uh, I'm not a deadhead or whatever they are. Uh, no, and so I mean, and I, to my knowledge, I don't know that I've ever heard from him. I have a couple of times, you know, correspondence, but. Uh, this thing's been blown way yeah. out of uh, proportion. Well, it makes I, I'll tell you what, so I wondered I about yeah. it. I wondered, I mean, here's the guy's a Christian, and he has this uh, persona where he acts like a crazy man or something. Yeah. And somehow he's got that together in his own head. <laughs> and I, I've never had the chance to really discuss it with him, okay. so I don't know. I think it's cool you guys hung out, and I think it's a good story. So <laughs> um, We had a great time, I can tell you that. I really enjoyed him. Did you beat him in golf? Be you know, honest, Darcy. It's one of the commandments. Uh, it doesn't seem like you did. <laughs> well, actually, the truth be told, that as I recall it, and he may recall it differently, when we played, my handicap was zero. That was years ago, before I took 15 years off from golf from a train wreck. But, and he was a two handicap mm-hmm. player. And if I recall that, we both played pretty well that day, and I think I won by a shot or two. But we weren't playing against each other. We were playing with each other. Yeah. And it wasn't a match or anything like that. And so I'm really not sure. 
who did what, but I, I noticed that we played pretty close to you. That's right. I, I think we were both playing close to our handicaps that day. That's great. Here's another um, pastoral question from Cully Stevens, somebody else on Facebook. No, that was a pastoral question, huh? That was a pastoral. <laughs> well, they wanted to know how, you know, they, they had the impression you were his pastor and you're giving him counsel and you guys are friends, and how does that work? Oh, I see. So you've clarified oh. that. Here's one from Cully Stevens. Uh, what f- advice would you give someone that feels called to be a pastor but is still young? In what ways could they prepare themselves that would be beneficial and something that might be helpful to avoid? So for a lot of, you know, say young men thinking of going into ministry or church planning of some sort or kind, they've still got some years before they're ready. What should they do? What should they avoid? What's a good way to use those single years before they're married? Uh, two things that come to my mind. There's, there's certainly nothing profound about it, Mark. I think the first thing is they have to get in the Word. I mean, they'll only yeah. be as good in the pastor as their mastery of the Word of God. Because yeah. that's what people really need. They may not be what people want to hear, but they need to hear. That's where the power is. Yeah. I try to talk to the young guys. and say, You guys are getting intoxicated and seduced by programs and all these clever novelties and stuff because you're looking for power. Mm-hmm. Just like in the... 16th century, you know, Luther's last sermon was uh, saying that people, even in spite of the light of the Reformation, they were still going to Trier and other places because yeah, they had a pair of Joseph pants there and they were looking for power in these relics. The power is in the gospel. That's where God put the power. Yeah. And you, you, you can't improve upon that. So get in the Word and learn, learn the Word, first of all. Second of all, get good mentors not necessarily contemporary mentors, but look at the great preachers and the great pastors of church history. Yeah. See what made Jonathan Edwards tick and what, what made Spurgeon tick. Learn to get the biographies and, and look at these things where the, the transcend uh, culture and transcend uh, time t- times that where I live in and where they live in. You know, there, There's some basic what we call transferable principles mm-hmm. that fit every age group and every culture, every generation. So for you, on that list of sort of dead mentors, some of your favorites, biographically, people that you keep coming back to? Augustine, mm-hmm. Athanasius. You know, John, uh, John Piper wrote that book. And yeah. He had that marvelous study of Athanasius in there. I love that, John Owen and others. Uh, Aquinas. I mean, I have a tremendous respect for Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, that's that's surprising. That's and uh, and of course Luther, yeah. Calvin. When I get depressed, you know, I usually pick up one of Luther's books and and read it hmm. because he he had to be in the battle every minute. Yeah, and he was hanging on by his fingernails every second. And every minister goes through that. Uh, and well, we have sixteen thousand leave the pastorate every year. That's that just breaks my heart. And and think people need to be sure of their vocation. They need to know that they are called to God to do something so that no matter what comes their way, they're going to keep their eyes back on that, that call and mm-hmm. be, be faithful to it. And that's what people like Edwards, uh, as I say, Calvin, Luther, Spurgeon, and then ministers from my own life that I've known that I greatly admired, and I saw them... Uh, Maintain integrity in tough times. Yeah, you got to have models like that. That transitions well, I think, to some personal uh, questions. There was one here. Uh, 
David Ha on Facebook, he asks, uh, what has been the greatest spiritual battle you've ever faced, uh, which he's failed in, and through that, what situation and circumstances has God used to redeem it? So his question is, the biggest battle you ever had where you didn't feel like it went well, how did you recover from that? Um, How did God redeem that? Well, probably uh, smoking Hmm. in my own life. When I... I was converted, you know, from paganism as we all are, and uh, wow, boy, I I just could my whole life turned upside down. My vocabulary changed, you know, my behavior changed, but boy, I was hooked on. You smoke. were about how old? Eighteen. Eighteen. You know, and it became a monumental struggle. Uh, I prayed for years to be delivered from that, and and uh, I like I don't know whether it was W. C. Fields or whoever it was who said that quitting smoking is easy. I did it a thousand times. <laughs> <laughs> that was true for me. I did do it a thousand times, and and I failed a thousand times. And I you know I realized that that that, that the kingdom of God's not in those things, mm-hmm. and then I knew that there were other. People in the past, even Edwards and Spurgeon, who were smokers, you know, mm-hmm. but they didn't have the Surgeon General around them. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that that was many, 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 many years of uh, hmm. of failure, and then uh, uh, God cured me of it. Uh, gave me a spot on my lung, and I realized I was at the place where. I had to make a decision whether I wanted to smoke or I wanted to breathe. Yeah. And then it was easy. And so in that sense, uh, the victory was his, not mine. How many years ago did that spot show up on your lung? Eleven years ago. Eleven years ago. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a malignancy or anything. It was just enough to get my attention. Yeah. And your <laughs> wife's attention. Yes. That had to be really yeah. frightening. It was. It was. It was uh, well, it was frightening, but it was calming. And it was like it was like the Rubicon had come. The yeah. watershed was there. I said, I, I can't fool around with this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and in a real sense, there was peace that came with it. Hmm. My uh, next personal question is from uh, this guy named uh, Levi Binger, Binger from Facebook. It says, uh, when you hit hard times, hard seasons, everything's going wrong. I call that Monday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What do you do in your studies and life to keep your heart on Je- on Jesus and to stick close to him and to get through it? So when it gets really bad, what things do you default toward to stick close to Jesus? Uh, two things. Uh, one is uh, getting in the Word. Nothing calms my spirit faster. Hmm. Than, than... Do you read long sections, short sections? Yes. Just read. Whatever. And uh, <clears throat> Let me ask you this too. Right? We're off on a rabbit trail, but do you have a formal Bible reading plan, or are you just regularly reading? And no, more because like I'm the teaching leads? all the time out of yeah. the Scripture. I'm, I'm into it for no other reason than preparing my, so my you're messages. Studying. But uh, it's 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 where God touches me is in in and through the Word, mm-hmm. and that's where I get relaxed and calm. I know I'm in trouble when I'm not sleeping. When something's bothering me to the place where I'm not sleeping, yeah. and there, following Luther's uh, method of a simple way to pray has been very helpful to me. 
you know, his barber asked him to teach him how to pray. And so he wrote a special little thing for his barber to teach him how to pray. And, and that's been very helpful to me. What is that? I don't know that. Well, basically, what Luther said is, he said he told his barber to pray through the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. But he didn't mean by that, pray the Ten Commandments, or pray the Lord's Prayer, or pray the Apostles' Creed. But rather, it would be something like this. Use those as a structural guideline to say for the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven. And then you start thinking about what it means to say, to call God Father. Yeah. The only way I can do that is he's not my natural father, he's not my biological father. And I, and I pray, I start focusing my prayer on the grace of adoption and that I have Jesus as my elder brother and I've been able to enter into that family. And, and then I talk about uh, the fact that my, the one I'm calling my father, even though he's present here, he's imminent and all of that, Nevertheless, his natural abode is, is heaven. Mm. The, that he is a supernatural being. That he is the uh, one only God. And I focus on, on the uniqueness of his attributes in my prayer. And praise him for his eternality, his self-existence, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his simplicity. So it goes from scripture to prayer to worship. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my prayer life then, I don't have to think about what should I pray about. Here it is. I just follow that. And, and, then, I, and, then I, and I can't get through the Lord's Prayer in a season of prayer. I mean, you think about, hallowed be thy name. And I start, quit worrying about my problems. What my Lord gives me is my first priority in prayer is to pray that the name of God will be regarded with reverence and adoration and that we would have a renewal of, of understanding the holiness of God. <clears throat> and I ask God when I pray that remind me who I am and who he is. And the more I get in, involved in that, the less my problems are, are important. I have to say this too, though. I mean, when I first became a Christian... It was like this, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. You're up, you're down, you're high, you're low. You go for a retreat and you live on a spiritual high and you live off that for a while. But it seems like your faith is only as good as the intensity of your last spiritual experience. But the longer you live in the faith, the more the, the highs are lower and not as high and the lows are not as low. And you get to a more stable situation, mm-hmm. which... I mean, there are not a whole lot of new things that I have to deal with that I haven't had to deal with some other time in my life. Yeah. And seeing the record of God's faithfulness yeah. probably changes the disposition in the face of potential anxiety. Yeah. Um, do one more. Uh, looking back on 45 years of ministry, is that accurate? Yes. 45 years of ministry. It's amazing. Uh, that doesn't it, count the student ministry I did when I was a seminarist. Sure. <laughs> So maybe pushing 50. Yeah. Looking back on your years of ministry, if you could do one thing over again, and I know a Calvinist isn't supposed to have any regrets, so I don't know if you're allowed to oh, say sure you'd like to do something over. Well, but. Sure. Uh, if I could do something different? Well, it's only 12 years ago that I 
became a pastor of a church. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't really a real pastor of a church. I was asked to be the minister preaching. of preaching and teaching, you know, which is the easy part, of, as you know, being a pastor. People and, are far more difficult than messages. Absolutely. Yeah. You got that right. <laughs> but that has been the highlight of my ministry. Really? My life. My, so my you church. were a, an academic, primarily a yes. lecturer and teacher. Right. But having a flock, being their pastor. Yes. What parts of that are really uh, transforming for you, the pastoral work? Well, to me, the, the, the most important thing I do in the pastor is preach. Uh, I'm an expo- expositional preacher. I preach through books of the Bible, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wish that I would have started this 45 years ago so that I could preach through the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I hear stories about a guy who says it was seven years in a given church and he had to leave because he ran out of stuff to preach. I said, you preached the whole Bible in seven years. <laughs> How did you do that? But uh, that's my biggest regret. I wish I would have started sooner. Started that church a whole lot sooner. What's it done in your own heart, pastoring a congregation, shepherding a flock? I mean, now, because you're, you're doing weddings and funerals and hospital visits. And no, I'm not doing people. any of the pastoral concerns. I, I don't do pastoral calling. I don't do counseling. Mm-hmm. I don't do any of that. I do weddings and funerals. Mm-hmm. But I have an associate pastor who's, Helps. who does all the rest of that. I mean, he takes he's terrific. He really pastors the flock. Yeah. But still, the greatest benefit for me is working through the whole text of Scripture mm-hmm. uh, in a preaching mode with well, people. What's the difference between lecturing in a class and preaching in a church? Well, my students, you know, would say, I think a lot of them, that they couldn't tell a difference <laughs> <laughs> because I mix those up. When I would get to be teaching in, in systematic theology and that sort of thing in the seminary, you know, in the middle of the lecture, I'd, I'd start preaching. So, but there is a difference between teaching and preaching. And there's a lot of teaching in my preaching. But the, the great thing I like about having a pulpit ministry like that is when I was in the academic world and teaching and speaking all here and there and everywhere, uh, I was just talking with Richard Pratt recently, and we were sharing, commiserating this sort of thing. And he said, you know, he says, I've been fulfilling this pulpit in such a place for a whole year. He says, before I went there, he said, I only had 30 talks. (laughs) I said, that's all I had, too, until I started having to come up with to the same people every week, the same congregation. There's a whole lot to be said by that. I mean, there's a place for itinerant. Preachers and teachers, and I've been that most of my life. But uh, to really get to see your flock grow and develop, and I, I love that. That's beautiful. I, I feel prompted to ask one last question. Um, you like to laugh. You've got a good sense of humor. You're a fun guy. I appreciate that. I'm a mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> Meeting your wife briefly... She's happy. She's she seems first impression fun. What uh, in what ways has your wife? And I want to say this uh, carefully. I'm a complementarian, male only elders. But in what ways is your wife kind of like your pastor? You minister to people, preach, teach. You have deadlines, criticisms. 
She's been there for how long now? Uh, be 50 years in June. 50 years married? Yes. And how long have you known one another? Oh, well, I bumped into her literally. You know, I ran into her literally uh, when uh, she moved to our town and uh, started attending my school and at recess one day. She was running uh, around the corner of the school in one direction, and I was running in the other direction, and I literally collided with her. Ran How into old were you? Six. Six. <laughs> I was in first grade. So she, she was in second grade. Oh, she went for the older woman. Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. So how old are you now? Seventy. Seventy. So you've been together 64. We've known each other for 64 years. 64 years. Yeah. That is wonderful. And we celebrate 50 years with you. In what ways has she been God's grace into your life? Well, we call her at home, she who must be obeyed. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, she has had to be editor, uh, critic, uh, you know, every sermon I preach. After church, the first thing is, how was the sermon? <laughs> and she'll say, oh, I was great. Or she'll say, wasn't your best? <laughs> But she won't say, oh, that was horrible. You really laid an egg. You know, <laughs> she has been uh, my helpmate. Mm. She really has. I mean, I had a stroke, uh, a rare form, a brain stem stroke uh, mm. six years ago, which made it, I can't write anymore like I used to, pen and ink, yellow pad, write a manuscript. So you don't type books? No. Wow. And now I don't, even, I can't do that anymore. Now the staff... We'll take a series of lectures, and transcribe them, send them to an editor who will put them in first draft written form, and then they give them to Vesta. Wow. And Vesta does the magic. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't put anything out there in print without her uh, imprimatur on it. She's really good at that. Hmm. And uh, I mean, I think she's my wife, you know. And, but still, I learn new things about her every day. Mm. And uh, she learns new things about me every day. And we do have a good time. Uh, she's a fun lady. <laughs> and I think the people who know her enjoy her company. She's, she's really a people person. Mm -hmm. uh, she's a, uh, I'm a doobie, you know, and she's a BB or whatever you call yeah. it, you know. Uh, she is who she is and, and she's a people person so that she knows everybody's name in our congregation and I'm still looking up the, the church directory and putting faces and names together and I'm so glad that we have name tags that I can remember to yeah. all these people but she not only knows their names she knows about them where they're having problems she's a very compassionate person very uh, gregarious person People don't believe this about me, but I really am, in some ways, shy. I think most preacher teachers are introverts, at least to some degree, because you have to be alone to get prepared and with God and study that. Right. I, I, you know, people laugh when I say that, yeah. but I am. I had one lady say to me once, she said, you're the most closed, open person I remember. <laughs> <laughs> you're a real open, blah, 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 until you get about this deep, then all of a sudden, you're on into steel. You know? But, I don't 
Thank you very much for your time and congratulations on 50 years and on behalf of a whole lot of young leaders, thank you for your writing and your preaching and your teaching and your service. I think it is fascinating that you don't even track that, but one day we'll all get together in heaven and you'll see how God's grace uh, came through you and served uh, a generation that's really benefiting. So thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, buddy. You've been very, to you. very encouraging to me. Thank you, buddy. Thank you.